Hello, everyone. My name is Long Deng, and I'm an intern at Elucidations. On this episode of the podcast, Matt and Henry spoke to Grand Priest, distinguished professor of philosophy at the CUNY Graduate Center, about Buddhist metaphysics. Topics of the conversation range from dialethism, the view that there are statements which are both true and false, to the four noble truths in Buddhist metaphysics. According to Priest, Buddhist metaphysics is not a pessimistic philosophy. It provides, in effect, a way to deal with the suffering, frustration, and unhappiness of human life by examining the cause of unhappiness and ways by which you could change your state of mind. If you have any questions or comments, tweet us at elucidationspod. Enjoy. Welcome to Elucidations. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Henry Curtis. With us today is Graham Priest, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the City University of New York Graduate Center and Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Melbourne. And he is here to discuss Buddhist metaphysics. Graham Priest, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Hi, Matt. Henry. So one thing we were interested in asking you about is uh, how you came to be interested in either Buddhism or Buddhist philosophy? Well, it's like this. For a start, I wasn't trained as a philosopher. I was trained as a mathematician. So, um, for reasons I still don't understand properly, I was given a job in a philosophy department. And I spent many years educating myself in philosophy, reading, teaching, and so on. And after 20, 25 years, I started to think that I had a handle on philosophy, the big picture. And then I met uh, now a man who's now an old friend, Jay Garfield, who knew a lot about Asian philosophy, and I knew nothing. And talking to Jay, it made me realize that I was ignorant of half the world's philosophy. My horizon extended no further west, east than um, Russia or Turkey. Um, And so I came to understand that there was a lot of the world's philosophy I needed to know more about. And so I spent the time since then teaching myself or learning about the Asian traditions. You know, I haven't lost an interest in the Western traditions, far from it, but I've just been trying to find out what's happening on the other side of the East-West divide, as it were. And there's a fascinating amount of stuff that would interest any philosopher. You've been widely known and associated with the position of dialetheism. And it seems like there, in the Buddhist metaphysics that you've written about, there's a lot of space where dialetheism can kind of play a role in elucidating some of the metaphysical positions. Could you maybe say a little bit about the relation between the two and whether or not chronologically the interest in dialetheism came first, and advocating for that as a position, or the interest in studying Buddhist philosophy? Okay, well, the chronological thing first. What maybe interested in dialetheism many, many years ago uh, were issues from logic, particularly things like Gödel's incompleteness theorems, um, the paradox of self-reference and so on. So that's what set me on the dialectic path, as it were. And then over the next 20 years, years or so, I started to investigate the possibility of dialetheism in other areas, for example, by reading Hegel and legal philosophy and so on. 
So at that point, there was absolutely nothing to do with the Asian traditions. What interested me in the Asian traditions originally also had nothing to do with dialethism. It was just that I, I, I found the philosophical ideas that you get in many of the traditions, Asian traditions, especially, I guess, Buddhism interests me more of all these traditions. Um, I, I found those fascinating. But as you know, I thought about them more and talked to people about them and so on, it did seem to me that there was scope for applications of dialethism in the Asian traditions. So some things I've done over the years since I got to know something about Asian philosophy has been exploring the applications of dialethism to uh, the Asian traditions, and, and particularly Buddhism, I guess. It would be fair to say that dialethism is roughly the idea that some statements can be simultaneously true and false? Yeah. Or how would you... Yeah. Yeah. So um, they're contradictory statements that are true. So a contradictory statement is something of the form, it's raining, it's not raining, we're in New York, we're not in New York, and so on. And the dialethic view is that some statements of that form, although not those examples, can be true. And another way of saying much the same thing is that some statements can be both true and false. I see. And what would be an example of a contradictory statement that actually is, in your view, true? Yeah, okay, so there are many possible examples, but I guess uh, one of the ones that's drawn most attention over the last 30 or so years, and also one of the easiest ones to get your head around, is one of the paradoxes of self-reference. This is called the liar paradox. Um, It's a paradox that's been known for two and a half thousand years in the West, and uh, all the great logicians of the last couple of thousand years have addressed the question of what one should say about it. Most of them have thought that something has gone wrong with the reasoning, which leads you to a contradictory conclusion. But dialethism says, no, there's nothing wrong with the reasoning. You should just accept it at face value. Okay, so what is the reasoning? Well, the liar sentence is a sentence of the form, this very sentence that I'm now uttering is false. Okay, you ask yourself, is that true or is that false? Well, suppose it's true. It says it's false. So if it's true, well, then it must be false. So if it's true, it's false. Okay, what's the other possibility? Well, the other possibility is it's false. Hey, but it says it's false. So if it's false, then it's true. So if it's false, it's true. So it seems to be false and true. And that's the liar paradox. So the topic of this episode is Buddhist metaphysics. What exactly would you say that metaphysics is? Yeah, that's a really hard question. I'm not sure I've got a very good answer. Like so many things in philosophy, the best way to explain something is not to give a definition, but to give examples. So, you know, metaphysical questions are about time and space and substance and causation, identity and etc., etc. But if you want a rough and dirty definition, it's something to do with the structure of reality. That's not very satisfactory because, in some sense, physics is also about the structure of reality. Metaphysics is about the structure of reality at some more fundamental level. And, of course, how you cash out that thought is highly contentious. But if you want a quick and dirty definition, that'll do. So, in investigating Buddhist metaphysics, having earlier studied the classical Western tradition of metaphysics and then also being immersed in the kind of contemporary mainstream anglophonic metaphysical tradition, 
What were some of the first and largest kind of differences that you noticed between the two? Yeah. Okay, well, the first thing to note is that there's no single tradition in the West and there's no single tradition in the East either. And certainly there isn't anything that you could call Western metaphysics. I mean, think of Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Hegel, Nietzsche, Wittgenstein, Kripke. I mean, generally speaking, these have not much in common. So there are many, many different metaphysical systems uh, what you find in Western philosophy. And the same is true in the East. I mean, metaphysical systems that you get in Buddhism are not the same as those you get in Taoism or Confucianism or Hinduism. Even within Buddhism, there's no single metaphysics. I mean, Buddhism is a, a philosophy that evolves over two, two and a half thousand years in two subcontinents. And there are many different systems of metaphysics which you find in Buddhism, early India, later India, East Asia, China, Japan. Okay, so there's no uniform story to be told here. Some of the metaphysical systems which you find in Eastern philosophy are similar to those you find in Western philosophy, or some of them. So, for example, you can hear similarities between let's say, a Kantian metaphysics and the metaphysics of Advaita Vedanta, which is a Hindu school. Um, so often when you study metaphysics across the East-West divide, you will see certain views that are kind of occur on both sides. I mean, both sides have a realist tradition and an idealist tradition and so on. Often these views are articulated in somewhat different ways, depending on the context, of course. But you know, there, there are aspects of these things which are relatively similar. I think one thing that I find interesting about some Buddhist metaphysics is that it does have a kind of metaphysics of which there's no equivalent, I think, in the West. So Buddhism goes through a development for about five or six hundred years after the the life of Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha. Um, and then around the turn of the common era, it develops into a new form of Mahayana. And one of the central ideas of Mahayana Buddhism, especially in one of its Indian forms, Madhyamaka, is that everything is empty. Now what that means is this. It does not mean that everything is non-existent. This is not nihilism. What it means is that everything is empty of, and then there's a sort of Sanskrit word which is hard to translate. The word is svabhava, and it means something like self-being, self-nature, so something with svapava is something which is what it is independently of anything else. It's kind of metaphysical atom, if you like. And the Madhyamaka view is that there's nothing like that. So everything is what it is, only in virtue of its relation to other things. So Graham Priest is not what he is in virtue of having a soul or a self. Graham Priest is what he is in virtue of his genetic structure, the way his parents treated him, the school he went to, his professional experiences and so on. That's what makes me Graham Priest, okay? So I am what I am only in relationship to those other things. And the Madhyamaka view is everything is like that. Everything is what it is, only in relation to other things. So, And as far as I know, you don't find a view like that in Western philosophy. So there are certainly metaphysical views you find in some of the Eastern traditions you don't find in the West. And it's probably true the other way around as well. 
But I mean, that was one that I found particularly interesting in, in Buddhism. So, are there places, certain junctures, you think, in debates with which philosophers operating in the West might be more familiar, where, say, Madhyamaka Buddhism or various other schools of Buddhist thought may be able to make points or enter into conversations in ways that are novel? Um, that may not be as familiar with philosophers in the West, but can lend kind of interesting insights and progress debates in certain ways? Well, take the discussion between idealism and realism. Debates between idealists and realists are replete in all philosophical traditions, and of course people cash out those thoughts in different ways. Realism is crudely the thought that there is stuff out there which is mind-independent, okay? And idealism is the thought that stuff is mind-dependent. E- even realists are idealists about some things. You know, if you're a realist about atoms, then um, you may well think that works of art. You know, what is it to be a work of art? That's conceptually dependent. So the realist claim is that at least there's some stuff out there which is mind-independent. Whereas the idealist claim is, generally speaking, that everything, or at least everything that we normally think of as mind-independent, is mind-dependent. The obvious example is Kant here in the, in the West. Okay, so that's the realist-idealist debate. Now, you certainly get these things going on in the East as well, but something that's kind of interesting about Madhyamaka, I think, is that it, you can't really pin it down on either side of that debate, because everything depends on other things. So it's true that most stuff is going to depend on the mind in some sense, and that might make it sound idealist. But of course it's equally true that the mind is dependent on reality. So you can't privilege either the world or the mind in either sense. Um, I mean, you know, crudely, idealists will say the mind is more fundamental than the world, Realists will say the world is more fundamental than the mind. And Madhyamaka says, no, each is dependent on the other. There's this kind of dialectic between them. Is there a similar position in Western philosophy? Well, it's hard to think of one, but perhaps the closest you get to this is Heidegger, who runs together a kind of phenomenological line about the real world. So in some sense, you cannot divorce the world from reality, but then people are sort of thrown into the world and so you cannot divorce their thinking from the objective reality out there. I'm never sure that I've understood Heidegger on this question but if there's a Western philosopher who has a similar view that mind depends on the outside world and vice versa, I guess it's Heidegger. So I'm intrigued by this idea that uh, you, as it were, are um, dependent on your relation to every single other thing. So, like, does it fall from that that if I were to, like, leave the apartment now and thus I would change my relation to you, I'd be, like, farther from you distance-wise, would I then change you fundamentally? Would you be transformed into something different because I left the apartment? Yeah. Okay. So, first of all, let me say that the Madhyamaka view is that everything is what it is in virtue of its relation to some other things. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, when Buddhism goes into China a number of distinctively Chinese forms of Buddhism emerges. And one of the schools is called Huayen. Um, it means literally a flower garland. 
don't worry about it, it's just the name of a sutra, which these guys take to be important. So the name doesn't mean anything in particular. However, what the Huayen do is take this principle of emptiness and universalize it so that everything is what it is, not just in relationship to some other things, but all other things. Okay, so there is one class of Buddhism that says that everything is what it is in relation to other things. Okay, now, the question is, what counts as a relation? And people distinguish between different kinds of relations. So, stick with the West for a moment. There's um, such a thing as a, a Cambridge relation. So, suppose I remain the same size, but you shrink until you're <laughs> three foot tall. Okay. Yeah, a witch, uh, you know, casts a spell or something. Yeah, okay. Then one of my properties has changed. Namely, I've become taller than you. But this isn't really a change in me. So the relationship of being taller than you isn't necessarily a relation that I have in myself. It's philosophers, Western philosophers call this call thing Cambridge changes. Okay. Um, and some people think, well, you know, you shouldn't talk. Those, those are not real relations or real properties. There are sort of honest-to-God, hardcore relations out there, in reality, if you like. So David Lewis, for example, a Western philosopher, calls these sparse relations. So the answer to your question, finally, is that if you leave the room, no. That doesn't necessarily imply that I, I change in any interesting sense, because you're leaving the room will be a kind of one of these kind of Cambridge relations, not one of these hardcore relations. Of course, it's an interesting question of what the honest-to-God relations are. That's, I'm not sure they have a very sensible answer to that question, but to address your question properly, you'd need to address that question. Hmm. Another um, maybe related question I have about uh, both of these views, that is to say the view that I am what I am in virtue of my relations to certain other things and the view that I am what I am in virtue of my relations to all other things, so is it maybe part of the idea there that, like, I couldn't be the only thing in the universe because I'd have to be related to other things in order to have the features that I have? Well, for you personally, you have parts, so you must be dependent on your parts. I guess you could say, well, supposing there was something that was partless. Yeah, like an electron. I, well, I guess they have parts too, yeah. Um, so could there be a universe with a, just a single thing in it? This is going to take us into hardcore metaphysics. <laughs> All right. Even if there were nothing else, there would still be nothingness. So anything there is is going to relate to nothingness. Now, this will sound a very bizarre view to most Western philosophers because talking about nothingness sounds very strange and contradictory. But something like this is not an uncommon view in, West, in certain kinds of Buddhism when nothingness is something like Buddha nature. It's uh, the ground of unconceptualized reality, if you like. It's nothingness because there's nothing you can say about it. It's just there, thusness. Um, the canvas of the universe, as it were. Something. If you like, yeah. So it's not even clear that the thought that there can be just one thing in the cosmos makes sense, if you take that perspective. Right? So one of the first points that often comes up when people are discussing Buddhism and getting into the central tenets of Buddhism are the Four Noble Truths elaborated by the Buddha himself. So do you think you could kind of explain what those are and then how they kind of lead into the Eightfold Noble Path? Okay. Well, 
Buddhist views change radically in different forms of Buddhism. However, the Four Noble Truths were enunciated by the historical Buddha. I mean, legend had it that he swept them out in his first teaching after reaching enlightenment, whatever that is. And those pretty much core to all forms of Buddhism. Those don't change. And there are four of these things, and they're in the sort of form of a medical diagnosis. Okay, there's an illness, there's a cause, there's a prognosis, and there's a cure. Okay, so the first noble truth is um, that life is not a happy one. Okay, that life is beset by, and then there's one of these untranslatable Sanskrit words, dukkha, which is usually translated as suffering, but its connotations are much, much broader than that. It means suffering for sure, but it also means frustration, unsatisfactoriness, unhappiness, all the things you really don't like in life. Okay, So the first noble truth is, you know, life's like that. Get your head around it. You know, there, there is no one who doesn't age if they're lucky enough, get ill, lose loved ones, limbs, whatever. You know, th- this is a feature of life. And that can make Buddhism sound like a really pessimistic philosophy. It's not. Hang on. It's a realist philosophy. Life is like that, right? So the second noble truth is, okay, what's the cause? Well, you know, when you're unhappy, when you experience dukkha, this can be caused by many things, like, you know, bridges collapsing, stock markets collapsing, wars, illness. Most of these things are beyond your control. There's one thing, and only one thing, that you, generally speaking, have control over, which is your attitude. This is the thing you bring to bear on what life throws at you, as well. And it's a specific attitude, and the Sanskrit name for that is Trishna. Um, the standard translation is craving, which is not great. It's more like sort of an attitude of attachment and aversion. So when shit happens, you want it to stop. When good things happen, you want it to go on. Okay. And the thought is that when you experience this dukkha, the cause, at least in part, is the attitude you bring to bear on the things that happen. So the third noble truth is just a corollary. You know, get rid of the cause, you get rid of the effect. Change your mind, and you won't experience the dukkha. Well, in theory, anyway. And the fourth noble truth is, hey, you can do that. So as I said, this is not a pessimistic philosophy. You know, the fourth noble truth is a set of techniques or practices uh, which you can employ to help you change your headspace. And that's called the Eightfold Noble Path because there are eight steps. I don't think the Buddha ever intended them to be exhaustive and exclusive, but they're things like, well, understand the world in which you live, don't be an arsehole to other people, be aware of what your mind and your body are doing. Okay, so that's the idiot's guide to the Eightfold Noble Path. One of the first things this reminds me of in the Western tradition is stoicism, where the idea that um, the universe is basically like a you know a predictable mechanism just sort of chugging along where you can predict all future states of it in principle based on the current state of it is connected to this sort of ethical outlook where, uh, hey, I'm not sure I have free will. And, you know, if bad things happen to me, the one thing I can control uh, is not whether or not they happen to me, but what my attitude's going to be. So these are some sort of like echoes uh, that I heard in, in what you just said. Do you think the analogy to Stoicism is helpful, or do you think it's uh, maybe a little bit misleading? No, that's that right. I mean, in, in most of the Hellenistic philosophers, um, but particularly in Stoicism, 
there's the thought that uh, you should have the appropriate mental attitude to things that happen in life. And if you have the appropriate mental attitude, well, you won't be worried by the slings and arrows of not-so-outrageous fortune. Okay? You, you certainly get that in stoicism, but in a sense you get that in scepticism and epicureanism and so on. So to that extent, there's a similarity with Buddhism. Uh, you know, if you've got a good philosophical idea, lots of people are going to come up with it. Okay, so that's not news. Okay, so that part of Buddhism and Hellenistic philosophy is similar. Where they're not similar is in their metaphysics. Okay, because the Buddhist metaphysics is quite unlike Stoic metaphysics. In Stoic metaphysics, there's a kind of rational principle which runs the cosmos. Okay, you get nothing at all similar in Buddhism. So the underlying metaphysics is quite different, although the kind of ethical implications could be similar. Is this a coincidence that the same ideas are happened east and west? Well, nobody knows the answer to this. There's no doubt that information was going across the Silk Route. So the Silk Route stretches right from uh, East Asia, China, across all the stands, you know, Afghanistan, Turkestan, to Istanbul and Greece. And we know that people were carrying silk and spices and things across the trade route. And, of course, they must have been carrying ideas as well. So who knows what ideas passed in which direction across the trade route uh, in the last 500 years BCE, or the first, the last 1,000 years BCE. Uh, did Buddhist ideas go west? Did some Greek ideas go east? Maybe. We just don't know. And, you know, we'll never know probably because uh, these things are all conjectural. Hmm. I'm intrigued by this idea of arriving at a similar ethical conclusion on the basis of a completely different metaphysical picture. So what is the metaphysical picture that gets us to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path? Well, I mean, as I said, the metaphysics of Buddhism is different in different schools of Buddhism. But again, there are certain fundamental aspects of Buddhist metaphysics which don't change too much. One is impermanence, anicca, and the other is no-self, anatman. And the first of the fourth noble truths, that's the Eightfold Noble Path, is understand the world in which you're living, because if you don't, you're going to suffer because you don't understand the world in which you live. So impermanence, we live in a world of impermanence. Everything in the causal flux comes into existence when cause and conditions are right, hangs around for a while, and then goes out of existence when cause and conditions are right. Now, if you don't get your head around that, then, of course, when you know good stuff's happening and it ceases, you're going to be upset. But if you realise that it was inevitable anyway, well, maybe you won't be quite so upset. Actually, I don't think most people, when they think about it, think that anything's going to last forever. This is an inconvenient truth that we push to the back of our minds. We like to think that, you know, our kids are going to grow old and happy. We like to think that our finest achievements in changing the world, in writing philosophy, in running podcasts are going to be out there for a long time, but they're all going to go. You know, in the, in the heat death of the universe, if not substantially before that. Yeah, maybe it only seems like stuff is stably here because we're looking at it in our current time scale. But if we press the fast forward button, you know, everything would just decay. Yeah, and uh, you might be lucky if it lasts your current time scale, given the way the world is going. <laughs> um, but, you know, impermanence is one of the core thoughts of Buddhism. And the other one is an Atman, no self. In many ways, this is much more radical philosophically 
So following up on that discussion, and also following up on having already compared one famous school of Western philosophy, Stoicism, and Buddhist philosophy generally, in the Four Noble Truths and the idea of detachment, it seems like we can draw kind of another interesting parallel between the impermanence of the self or the non-existence of the self in Buddhism and a point that was made by David Hume in a treatise concerning human nature. Do you think you could kind of point out the nature of the Buddhist doctrine about the non-existence of the self and how it is similar to what Hume argues? Sure. So in discussing Anatman, the first thing you've got to do is get your head around what it actually means. Okay. So it's often classed as no self, and you might think that means that you and I don't exist. It does not mean that. Okay. The word self in English is ambiguous. You know, she saw herself in the mirror. It's talking about the person. When Buddhists say there's no self, they don't mean there's no person. I mean, the reality of persons is an interesting issue. Okay, Buddhists have various lines on that, but that's not what's at issue in Anatman. The self, in the sense in which all Buddhists deny it, is a part of a person and a part that it is constant and identifies the person as that very person. So in Western metaphysics, the closest analogue would be a soul. The Buddhists weren't attacking Christianity, of course. They were attacking Hinduism, uh, who believed that there's an Atman, a self, in that sense. Okay, so the Buddhist view is there's no such thing. All right, now, who have held similar views in the West? Well, anyone who denies the existence of a soul is going to have such a view. For example, Marx. But it gets a bit more interesting than that, because if you look at Western philosophers, many of them have identified the soul with consciousness, or maybe better, what holds consciousness together. So, you know, Descartes says, I think therefore I am, by the I, he means consciousness. And then Kant comes along and says, well, okay, but yeah, the consciousness is fragmented, it's all over the place, there must be something that holds it together. It must be something which accounts for, you know, in Kantian jargon, the transcendental unity of our perception. It's just a long Teutonic word meaning what holds all this junk in the mind together. The Buddhists certainly held there's a lot of junk going on in the mind, but there's nothing that holds it together because that would be some kind of self. Okay, so is there a Western philosopher who's held something similar? Yes, indeed, Hume. So Hume said, you know, when I sort of close my eyes and sort of think about my mind I can see all this blooming buzzing confusion of thoughts emotions sensations etc etc I can never catch anything which holds them all together I never catch an experience of myself as such there's just this blooming buzzing confusion now that sounds very much like the Buddhist view of the mind that there's just lots of stuff going on which is sort of there's nothing sort of central that holds it all together so sometimes people think of Hume's view as very similar to the Buddhist view. And again, you know, what Hume knew about Buddhism is we don't know, but he was certainly studying at some time in La Flèche in France, and we know that there were the, the library at La Flèche, a Jesuit monastery, had stuff coming back from the East. Now, did Hume read them? What did he read? Absolutely no one knows. Okay. It's just possible there's more than a coincidence here. It's possible it's in a complete coincidence. After all, you know, if a view is interesting, it can well occur to different people at different times completely independently. 
So I remember when I first heard of this idea that maybe there is no self. I was confused by it in kind of the same way I was confused when I first read uh, Jorge Luis Borges's essay, A New Refutation of Time, when he said, there's no such thing as time. I just thought, what do you mean? Like, stuff happens in time. Like, obviously, I don't even, I can't even conceive of what it would be for stuff not to happen in time. I don't even know what you're saying. And I sort of felt a similar way when I first heard about this doctrine of no self. I kind of felt like, well, it's just self-evident. I'm me. Here I am. I was the same me I was five seconds ago. What would you say to somebody uh, to whom this idea just sounds really counterintuitive? Is there a way to make it square with our sort of immediate intuitions? Sure. Well, first of all, put aside the thought that when you're referring to the self, you're referring to your body. Okay. You know, as I said, when the Buddhist denies the self, they're not saying you're not here. You meaning your physical appearance, all right? I mean, if you're thinking that, you're just going off the wrong track. The self, if it's this sort of Kantian thing which holds your thoughts together, precisely is the kind of unity of your consciousness. And it is natural to think that I have this unity of my consciousness which I'm first person aware of. It's exactly that thought that essentially Hume is trying to debunk. But you cannot deny that we have what you might call an illusion of self. You know, when you wake up this morning, this little voice comes on and says, Hello, I'm back again. You know, if the Buddhists and Hume are right, this is an illusion. Now, we know that the brain is very good at illusions. We know that the brain fills in gaps. So, for example, in psychology, there is a phenomenon called the um, psi phenomenon. You use it in making movies. So when you see, say, a bunch of lights um, and they flash one after the other in rapid succession, say moving from left to right, when you look at them, you will see something that moves. There's nothing that moves, okay? What the brain is doing is sort of filling in the gaps. And we know that the brain does this for external things all the time. Okay, so the question is, we have this view that we have a self could this be an illusion of the same kind with the brain filling in gaps, not with some kind of external sensations, but with some kind of internal sensations? And the view has to be that the sense of self is illusory. It really is just the brain filling in gaps. Now, that's a substantial philosophical view. Um, if the sense of self is really illusory, then one wants to know, well, what explains this? And Undoubtedly, it would be something to do with the function of the brain. If you look actually at modern cognitive science, something like that seems to be a very common view. So, for example, it's Dan Dennett's view of the self. that There's no sort of central meaner, I think those are his words, which holds everything together. There's just this kind of Humean, blooming, buzzing confusion. But the one thing the brain does is kind of impose structure on them by constructing a, a central meaner and giving the person the illusion they had this self. So you might think of that as kind of partly an explanation of how you can have the illusion of self. Okay, that's not an argument the self is an illusion. For that we have to go elsewhere. But it's kind of interesting that modern cognitive science is starting to come around to something like the Buddhist view. Hmm. And so I take it that part of what Hume takes his philosophy to be able to do is actually give an explanation as to why we do fall into this illusion. Is there anything you would say within any of the various schools of Buddhist philosophy that try to explain, cognitively speaking, why it is that human beings seem to, you know, mostly 
believe that there is some sort of permanent self that constitutes... Yeah. I'm not entirely sure there's anything in Buddhist philosophy which explains why we have this illusion. Buddhist philosophy is very much about, hey, you know, we find the world in a certain way. That's what it's like to be human, right? Uh, and one of these things is misunderstanding the world we live in and ourselves. So I don't think you're going to find anything in either Hume or Buddhism which explains why we have this illusion, if it indeed is an illusion. I think if you want an explanation of this thing, you're going to have to turn to evolutionary psychology because it's not implausible that creatures which have this illusion of self are more successful in reproducing their genes than creatures that don't have it. Um, so if there is an explanation of the thing, this, I suspect it's going to come from modern evolutionary cognitive psychology rather than either Buddhist or human metaphysics. So earlier in this episode, we discussed how Madhyamaka Buddhism can, in a sense, walk the line between realism and idealism in a way that might be somewhat difficult to find an analog for among philosophers operating in the West. That debate, the one between realism and idealism, is kind of a long-standing historical debate. Are there any contemporary issues that are kind of dominant in the literature in mainstream analytic metaphysics where you think Buddhism can have um, something very interesting to say that isn't necessarily being said by many authors within that tradition? Well, one thing you might think about are current debates on... um fundamentality, grounding, it goes by many names. Let's call it ontological dependence. So the thought is that when you look at the structure of reality, metaphysics, um, you can see that some things are dependent for their nature or their existence on other things. So, for example, you know, the shadow depends on being a shadow of a tree on the tree. The tree doesn't depend for being a tree on the shadow. Okay. So this is some kind of notion of ontological dependence. And in truth, the notion of ontological dependence has always played a role in the history of Western philosophy. You know, if you're a Christian, for example, you think that the creatures depend on the creator. So everything depends on God. And, you know, um, Plato thinks that things in the flux of the world depend on forms and so on. Okay, so you find claims about ontological dependence all the way through Western philosophy. But what's happened in the last, I guess, 20 years in Western philosophy is that a number of philosophers have started to scrutinise the notion of ontological dependence as such and think about how you analyse it, what it means, what its properties are. So this is uh, sort of a hot topic, something of a cottage industry from New York, it must be said. But in, in trying to analyse the notion or notions of ontological dependence, think about its property, a very common assumption that contemporary analytic philosophers make is that ontological dependence must bottom out somewhere. So if you've got some stuff that depends on more fundamental stuff, if that stuff depends itself on more fundamental stuff and so on all the way down, it's got to ground out in something that is ultimate in the sense it doesn't depend on anything else. And to the extent that people have thought this way in the West, this kind of foundationalism has been the most common view. Everything grounds out in God or the forms or, you know, these things. 
Well, okay, so the Buddhist term is that they have svabhava, they are what they are in of themselves, they don't depend for their nature on anything else. Okay, so th- this view is kind of foundationalism. And as I say, most contemporary analytic debates assume that foundationalism is true. I suspect they just take this over from the sort of historical Western context. Okay, now, it must be said that foundationalism is virtually never argued for. There are some possible arguments that don't look very good when you scrutinise them, but for most people who've worked on that sort of area of philosophy in the analytic tradition of the last 20 years, they've kind of assumed this. Now, it's not at all obvious. Fast backwards to Buddhist philosophy. So Buddhist philosophy evolves for five or six hundred years after the historical Buddha, and the Buddhist metaphysicians are foundationalists. They believe that you know, if you take a thing which has parts, like you or me, then those parts are going to depend on their parts, and blah, 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 and all the way down until you hit bedrock. And they have a name for these things called dharmas. And these dharmas have svabhava, they are what they are in and of themselves. Okay, so these guys are foundationists in the contemporary sense. What happens with the rise of Mahayana, and especially its... Madhyamaka variety is that this wages a fairly ruthless attack on the earlier Abhidharma foundationist philosophy. So earlier on we talked about the view that everything is empty, okay? Everything depends for what it is on other things. And that is true all the way down. So everything depends on other things and all the way in a, an infinite regress. So the Madhyamaka view is strongly anti-foundationalist. There's no ground to reality in the sense that everything depends for being what it is on other things. And I don't, again, I don't really know of similar views in the West. You get sort of structuralist views, both in French philosophy and mathematical structuralism, which says that lots of things depend for their, what they are on the structure in which they're embedded. Okay, so this is a standard thought in French structuralism. It's a standard thought on mathematical structuralism in philosophy and mathematics. But it's very rare to hear the philosophers who talk about the structure itself. And to the extent that there's a view, people, most people take the structure itself to be fundamental. Now, the Majamaka view is that it's structure all the way down. So even the structure depends for being what it is on other things. So there are certainly structuralist views in the West, but the thought that it could be structure all the way down is, I think, a view that we really only find in Madhyamaka. Is there an example of like a phenomenon where intuitively it feels like you keep going one level down and it's structure, structure, more structure, you're never going to reach an end? Try the following the table around which we're sitting depends for being what it is on its parts, the legs, the top, etc., etc. Take a leg, this depends for being what it is on the stuff it's made of. I think it's wood, so it's got cells of wood. Those cells are dependent for being what they are on molecules of certain kinds. The molecules depend for being what they are on atoms. Atoms depend for being what they are on, I don't know, subatomic particles, which might depend on quarks. Okay, now at each stage, what's happening is you're getting more and more fundamental things and um, as a matter of fact you know, the size are getting smaller and smaller and smaller now c- 
could this go on indefinitely? Well, if it goes further than quarks or whatever, we don't know about it. But there's in principle no reason why it shouldn't go on forever as far as physics goes, as far as I understand contemporary physics. So it could well be that in some sense this regressive parts goes on forever. If that's right, then you have this indefinite regress. Okay, there are all sorts of issues here concerning quantum mechanics and size and uh, so on. But we don't know how long quantum mechanics is going to last. So um, you ask for some kind of analogue in the West. Uh, that's one where you might look. Would you say um, there was that really beautiful analogy, the net of Indra? Would you say that that's an exemplification of this? Kind of, I mean, that I think has to do more with like interpenetration, but it, could it also be kind of endless grounding? Yeah, look, interpenetration is one way that dependence is conceptualized, especially in the Huayen tradition. So the net of Indra, it's a metaphor, a visual metaphor. You've got this god Indra who spread out a net through reality, and at each of the joints of the net, you've got a brightly polished jewel. Each jewel is an analogue for something in reality, like you and me or whatever. Uh, and each jewel, being brightly polished, reflects each other jewel. But of course, if jewel A is reflecting jewel B, jewel B is reflecting jewel A, so jewel A is going to reflect jewel B reflecting jewel A, and so on. So it's a bit like, you know, you maybe did this when you were a kid, you get two mirrors... You put them face to face and you kind of sneak a look at one of them and you can see mirrors, mirrors all the way down. Well, that's what one of these jewels is like. And so the, the metaphor of the net of Indra is um, a sort of visual metaphor for how the regressive dependence can go all the way because each jewel encodes every other jewel, encoding every other jewel and so on to infinity. Since you mentioned Borges just now, there's a really nice Borges story called the Aleph. I don't know if you recall it, but it's about the um, the narrator who goes to see a friend, and the friend says, "Hey, in the cellar, I've got this singularity in space-time called the Aleph, and if you put your head there, you can see the whole of the cosmos spread out before you." So the narrator says, "Oh yeah, pull the other one, right? I said, come, come, come and see." So the guy goes down into the cellar, and you know. Black, of course, and so he puts his head where the alip is and he waits for his eyes to acclimatise and God, he sees the whole universe spread out before him. And so he looks, this is happening in Buenos Aires, right? So he looks at the world spread out before him and he can see Argentina, he can see Buenos Aires, he can see his friend's house, he can see himself in the friend's house and he can see the alip. And inside the alip he can see is Buenos Aires and his friend's house and the elephant. Okay, so, you know, you get this picture. So Borges is playing with the same sort of idea that, you know, reality could be such that it's um, non-well-founded in just this way. So this is from fiction, it's not from physics, but it's, uh, it's a very striking illustration of how this kind of um, regress can happen. Well, like everything else, podcasts are impermanent, turns out. So thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. 
And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at at ElucidationsPod. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>